When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Black British Lives Matter, the podcast. I'm Lenny Henry. And I'm Marcus Ryder. This is the podcast where we explore why and how Black British lives matter, acknowledging and dealing with the racism we face, but wanting to go far deeper than that, exploring what it means to be black and British, our culture, our joy and our pain. It's jollof rice for the soul, jerk chicken for the mind. Now, Marcus, tell us what we have in store today. Well, Lenny, today we are looking at a subject that I am sure you will have strong views on, black British comedy matters. Woohoo! Why we laugh what we laugh at, and what it reveals about us as black British people. And even the fact that you're saying laugh and not laugh is hilarious. Okay, so <laughs> this is kind of my specialist subject, but tell me, who are the guests that we have on today? First of all, I just before I tell you that, I think that we have a diversity as black people of our accents. Thank you very much. Yeah? All right, fair enough. <laughs> laugh, bath, path. First, we have got the queen of black British comedy, the amazing Jeannie Yeshua. In many ways, she exemplifies what many see as the Black British talent drain. In 2008, she became the first Briton to perform on Deaf Comedy Jam. And in 2009, she appeared on The Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien. She has gone on to even greater heights in the US, writing, starring and even being a showrunner on some of the biggest US sitcoms. Very, very strong start. You missed out the fact that she was also a regular on a little primetime BBC One comedy series called The Lenny Henry Show. So, uh, who else do we have? Following the Queen, we have the Crown Prince of Funny, the fantastic Dane Baptiste. He made history in 2014 as the first black British act to be nominated for a comedy award at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. He regularly appears on TV and radio, and his amazing podcast, Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, was nominated for Best podcast at the National Comedy Awards in 2021. Wow. This is going to be a brilliant podcast episode. I can feel it in my joints already. First question for you, Gina. Why do you think black British comedy is important? And also, Dane, I'm going to follow up by asking you what your thoughts are. Well, uh, black British comedy is important because we have been in England or the UK for a long time. Our stories need to be heard. We need to tell our stories. Everybody gets a, 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 a reason to tell their stories. We need to be able to tell us from our own perspective. And there is something specific about the, the shared experience. Yeah, I, look, we can tell jokes to everybody. I can go to any audience anywhere. But it's, there's something about the specificity of talking to my own Black British people and the experiences that we have that just makes it important to me. And I think to us as a community. What about you, Dane? 
Um, first, yeah, I totally agree with Gina. And I think that's one of the most important things about uh, the oratory and uh, social aspects of black British comedy is that when we have a lot, of, we don't have a lot of control over how we are portrayed a lot of the time in mainstream media. So uh, comedy works very well in us being able to give anecdotes and give an account of our own experiences, which actually comes from an authentic source. It also uh, means that the diaspora, wherever they're located within uh, the UK in particular, can have a uh, shared experience in terms of our experiences. Because for a very long time, and I'd say up until recently, um, the conversation about the uh, f- state of race relations within the UK has been a conversation that not a lot of people wanted to have or uh, were prepared to confront. So comedy has always been an effective use of an icebreaker for us to open up this conversation, which is weirdly still a taboo in this country and allows for all of us to kind of compare our experiences. And I think, yeah, just on a interpersonal and on a psychological level, it makes us, it's, it's good because it makes us feel a lot less alone where we can hear stories from people that look and sound like we do. I mean, I, I definitely feel, feel that in that it's the comedy of recognition as well, of mm. realising that you have shared experiences. When I hear, you know, all three of you in, in your comedy, you know, I, I'm like, okay, so I'm, I am actually part of a community. I'm part of a shared experience. Yeah, and we get to tell our stories the way that we want to tell our stories. Not, it's not seen through the eyes of other people, you know? Yeah, and also dismantle the idea of the monolith as well, because black is a very... Black can be a very limiting term to describe the uh, wealth and diversity within the diaspora based within the UK as well, because obviously even all of us here within this group alone have, you know, varying different types of heritage, which aren't just as limited to being black. Obviously, Gina being Nigerian, Lenny being Jamaican, myself being from Grenada, just for an example, is that there is nuance to each one of those stories and having a black British voice allows us to make a distinction between those very rich uh, and basically we've a very rich tapestry of experiences and voices uh, that kind of dismantle the idea of us being a very uh, homogenous uh, voice. Yeah. Yeah, a group of people. Yeah, even when I can, one type of black comedy. Yeah. That's it. Just one. That's what you guys get. That's the assumption. Okay. I mean, even when I started doing comedy back in '95, uh, there weren't. You know, the 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 perspective was very much from a Caribbean perspective, and and Africans yeah. were very much the butt of the jokes. Whether it was our dry ankles or us being you know traffic wardens <laughs> or whatever, it was the, that was the. So I had to come when I came on the circuit. There was only me and Todji, so we were representing the the African contingent again. Well, actually, those are stereotypes as well. Yeah. Let's get rid of these tropes. Let me talk about life from my perspective. So it was nice to bring that to the circuit. Dane, can I talk about your grenade grenade and humour? Because yeah. your thing, when I saw you in Hackney that one time, um, I felt that you were doing stuff that was very British. You were talking about office politics and embarrassment and IT and the things people say at work and it wasn't necessarily a, a kind of trademark black thing it was just stuff that people everybody in the room recognized and tell me what influenced you to work like that um well i think it's it's based on as you uh, gina was saying before is that i think people had a very uh one-dimensional idea about what the black experience was and part mm-hmm. of her work initially was to uh combat against some of the stereotypes and preconceived notions people had about a group and I think I was trying to do something very similar that first of all it was to challenge stereotypes about um you know uh, the diaspora being relatively lazy and being work shy so it was kind of challenged in the fact that most of the black people I'd grown up with and known are very industrious and have been a part of uh you know the professional infrastructure of the UK for a long time 
So that was part of the subtext of what I was doing. But the other thing as well was just to find the commonality between audiences who hadn't really been exposed to the black experience for a very long time. Because I'm sure, as I show you, when I kind of got into comedy and ended up uh, having a sitcom on BBC Three, like they hadn't been on, on, on British screens for like 20 years. And what happened over that time, I noticed, and I've probably seen a lot more in retrospect, was I noticed that the aesthetic of blackness disappeared with like the end of the A4s and with uh, the Lenny Henry show. And that was replaced with uh, what appeared to be mimicking of ourselves. So you had shows like Ali G and Phone Jacker and Bo Selector, where it was more like a comedy represented in blackface or acceptable blackface yeah, instead yeah. of actually having black people give an account for themselves. So I guess I was really trying to start from scratch and do like a black people 101 to audiences and introduce them to the common experience <laughs> that we had, first of all. Here's what like, you need to know. Yeah, kind of be like, I don't know if you guys remember, but we still live here and we are actually still black people here and we do have our own experiences. And, our and own we're in the points. workplace. We're doing stuff alongside you. Yeah, we're we right next to you. you. Gina, do you think black British comedians play a different role in society to their white counterparts? Uh, we should be playing as big a role as our white counterparts. I'm going to say that. Uh, the different role we kind of answered in the first question in that we are bringing stories that they might not necessarily be able to represent to the mainstream. That's what I'm, I've been hoping to do my entire career is try mm. and bring our stories to, you know, look, we live with white people. We've been here for a very long time. They know we exist. And I don't think it, the, the audience is the problem. I think it's the gatekeepers that is the, the problem. I, I perform all over the world and I, I know that I can go into any room on any stage. And as long as you've got a sense of humor and you can speak English and you're facing the right direction, then, then it's a 99% possibility I can get you laughing at some point. Uh, but that is not what the gatekeepers believe. It's the people that run the BBCs and the ITVs and the Channel 4 who narrow the, the programming output to who they think the audience is and what they think mm. the audience want. And they underestimate the power of the, the interesting other people and the, 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 the need to hear other stories and to not be bothered by the same output over and over again. So I think that's the role we play, that we're just telling stories, the same way the white comics are telling stories. And they're not that different. We are all in England. I was born and raised in England. A lot of my experiences are the same. And a lot of the, the, the experiences are slightly different because of the culture. These Most of the people I'm talking to have witnessed it or know of it, you know? We've been living together for a long time. So I just feel like... Um, focusing on the differences. I don't think that's that many differences. Dane, I, I mean, I've already pointed out that a, a lot of your comedy is experiential and observational. Do you feel you play a different role to your white fellow comedians? What's your thing about how you fit in? I, 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 I don't think uh, black creators necessarily endeavour to play a different role to their white counterparts. I think what tends to happen is that you are kind of uh, lumbered with the same burden as most black creators is that because there are so many limited spaces uh, for us to express ourselves and there's such a limited uh, number of archetypes in which we are seen, it means that you are tasked with almost carrying the perception of your group on your mm -hmm. shoulders and you have to kind of approach your creativity knowing that some, a lot of the time, some things you say, especially to people or audiences that are uninitiated, will contribute to their perception of black people as a whole. So that's a pretty <laughs> that's daunting a task. responsibility. Yeah. So we all have... We oh, all so this is what you guys are like when you're at and home. And that's exactly what happens, is that if we say something, people will be like, well, so, 
well, Gina said this. And so isn't it the same for you? And I'm like, no, because we're from two different countries and two different parts of London. So, <laughs> and, and two different even generations. That, and so, how extraordinary that even a postcode can change the way we talk, the way we behave, the slang. It's amazing. I mean, yeah. I think, I think black humor, black British humor is so diverse, so extraordinarily, uh, different by degrees within a couple of miles of where you are. Hackney's different to Peckham. Peckham's different to Hansworth. Hansworth's different to Moss Side. There's different types of humour. I was on Big Nasty the other day and it was really weird because he he's very random. And there was this moment when he just started to do a scouse drug dealer who'd just been stabbed and I went, wow. We he's got me. Christ, he's got me. He's got me. He just started to do this thing. It was like an improvisation. But it was really, really funny. But I thought, wow, that's you wouldn't have seen that. Nobody, and, nobody and would thing, yeah, dare do we're that always in twenty that years ago. I think people have at the very at the very most what we've almost been grinding is a certain level of tolerance. That so people are like, okay, there are black British people here, but then then being prepared to accept the nuance of that uh, contingent of black people in the country has been another battle for a lot of comics. And as I said, so what they normally have to do is that not only do we have to find the commonality just to be accepted on stage a lot of the time as well. Then we have to work in that nuance where we're like, as well as being a black person, there's also differences in the region I grew up in and some yeah. of the influences that I have there. And, and the things I like, so, yeah. you know, they expect all, <clears throat> all black people have the same hobbies, all that, like the same food. You know, I go on stage and go, no, I, I play badminton. I'm sorry. That's, I know that doesn't sound super <laughs> black, but I play badminton. I love badminton. Hang on. And yeah. I can't imagine you're on a badminton court. Oh, listen, I'm a killer. Do you yes. have all the gear? I've got all the gear. Now I'm playing pickleball. This is the new latest sport. That I'm, that's you play what? It's called pickleball. What is that? This sport is taking over America. It's the biggest growing sport in America. It's like badminton, but it's, it's kind of like a cross between badminton and ping pong, but you're playing on a court outdoors, which is like a quarter the size of a tennis court. The bats that you're playing with are called paddles and they look like sort of, they look like pickle, uh, they look like table tennis bats, but bigger yeah. and more angular. And you're playing with a ball with holes in it. And it, so it's like a, it's like, you're, this is the best way to describe it. It's like you're playing ping pong, but you're standing on the table. That's what it feels like. Wow. And that is the biggest growing sport. So now badminton's gone. That's my new game. But what I'm saying is that these are hobbies that might not be considered black. And I'd go on stage and I'd go, look, yeah, I'm black. I've got similar experiences to you. I've got similar experiences to you, but I'm also a unique and different person who has d unique and different interests. We're all unique. Yeah. I like okay. that. And, yeah. and that's right. very important because that's, that's, and that's the work that a lot of black comedians do is that just by Gina talking about her day, it being someone who's playing like pickleball or play or plays badminton. It's like, Oh, so there's another black person that does it and does <laughs> it unapologetically. <laughs> and then, and then what that does is that that begins to broaden not only the perception of the diaspora, but also it frees uh, audiences to be able to express their best form of self. Um, uh -huh. as I said, a lot of the time we don't see representations of ourselves in these kind of positions. And as soon as someone sees somebody like themselves doing something that inspires people to again, do that. So that's another thing, I guess, one of the different things we do is that we can be a catalyst for changing the direction of our culture if we do it properly as well. And so it's I also helping black people. <clears throat> and it's yep. not even just for the white people, it's for black people. Because black people, we, we, we've been fed a certain type of comedy that black people, the box that we have to fit into. And then it gets to the point where you go out to certain black, or in America they call it urban crowds, and they expect a specific type of comedy. Like living in America the last 15 years, I've gone to these very hood rooms because I've, I've never shied away from doing rooms that a lot of people would be scared of. Like 
being, not being from America, not having that voice and not having that style of comedy, you know, I was like, I'm still going to go to these hood rooms and go, listen, just because I don't do that death can death jam kind of comedy, I'm not talking about my vagina the entire time and I'm not humping stools. I can still be funny. <laughs> I can still be funny just talking about who yeah, I yeah. am. I mean, and that's but Ginny, you I've say that, but you're I mean. the, you're the first black Britain or the first Britain to be on Def Jam. Yeah. So yeah. already by doing that, you've changed the, uh, you know, the fear that door. people associate with Def Jam in the first place. Yeah. Uh, so that's yeah. the kind no, of thing is that, you know, it's there wasn't the trailblazing is a big part of it. Yeah, yeah. We need a trailblazer because there wasn't a plan for black British comics to go to America and do what you've done. Yeah. We didn't know what to do. Uh, neither literally, did, neither literally, did I. <laughs> no, but you, but you went and did it anyway, which, which, which is a testament to your courage, I think, and your skill as a comic. I mean, Marcus called you the poster child for black British talent drain. Um, <laughs> I love you, that. <laughs> well, could so you talk true. to us about why so you true. went to the States? Why I went to the States? Um, because in England I felt stifled. Um, you know, I came up with the, the Michael McIntyre's and the Jimmy Carr's and all those guys. You know, I remember doing a show in Japan with McIntyre and he was so broke, he couldn't afford the taxi fare to the airport. And I remember oh. taking a taxi from my house in Woodgreen to Crouch and to pick him up to get him to the airport because he didn't have the money. Less than a year later. He said, my man was baiting. My man is <laughs> selling out stadiums with an agency that I put him with because I interviewed off the club because I was looking for new agents at the time. And I was like, I'm not going to go with you guys. I'm going with the, with PBJ. But there's this young guy, Michael McIntyre. You need to take a look at him. I think he's really funny. And they did. And then so within a year, he is selling out stadiums and I'm at the same level. So this is what I was struggling with my entire career, that people just didn't know what to do with me. Like I was there Mock the Week with the Russells, and yeah. watching them blow up from being on the Mock the Week and having these massive careers, but it wasn't happening for women or black comics in the same way. And I was like, I'm doing just as well on these shows as these guys, but yet I'm not being afforded the same opportunity to expand uh-huh. and do it. So I was like, well, you know, as a kid, I've always dreamed to live in America. I thought they had better clothes, toys. Sweet. You know, as a kid, I was watching children in America riding around on bikes solving crimes. So I always thought that America was better <laughs> than do that. So when you went to America, what changed? Did something have to change for your material to be, get across? Or did I you just, just keep it had safe? to spend the first minute or two explaining who I am. So I'd get up and I'd start talking and I'd go, oh wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, you guys are confused. And I'd do the whole thing about, yes, there are black people in England. I am British. We are everywhere. Yeah, we're not just in America and the Caribbean, wherever. And so I'd explain I'm not who an I Aborigine. Was. Yeah, I'm not a, you know, because they, yeah, they can't tell the difference between a British and Australian accent. So I do a whole thing about the British, where the British accent and the Australian accent intersect and all that kind of stuff. So I do that. And then I do the whole thing of, yeah, I'm in England and I loved watching you, your guys' shows. I, like, I was chubbier when I first went to America. So I do jokes about the fact that I'm the British Missy Elliott, but without the money or the house or the success. So I do a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I do a lot of that stuff to can't, to, to, for them to go, oh, we get it. And then I just go get into my regular relax. stuff. Yeah. Good. I basically get them to trust me. I get them to trust me. And go, all right, we get it. Because if you didn't, they'd spend the whole act just staring at your mouth, going, why is this person sound like this? Why is this black person talking like this? Yeah, so I do that, get that out of the way. Once they settle down and go, oh, we trust her, we get where she's from, and she's funny, then they relax and I could just go into my regular shit stuff. Dane, have you had much experience over there? So yeah, I've had some limited experience. I I, I did a few gigs over in New York as well. Uh, More uh, 
I guess some of the more places, places like the Knitting Factory, which I've had the pleasure of performing. And uh, Gina, I'll, I'll let you know now. I'll, I'm happy to be an apprentice, and uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm happy to sweep floors and, and wipe down tables if you can. She'd make you do that, you know. Make it yeah, Dan, you missed a spot. Listen, I, I tell you, like I tell all the people I look up to. One shot. Next time you're in the UK, I'll open for you for free if you can, you know, give me the game. <laughs> no, no, because I'm opening for Gina for free. Oh, whatever. <laughs> my woman, my woman's gone clear in here. You ring her up. Yeah, Len, you coming open for me? I'm like, damn. I'd be, I'd be happy. Not even happy one and two so. bone. No, I'd be happy to do so. And, and uh, no, I think for most, particularly black comics, uh, American comics were probably the first example we saw of people being able to talk about their experience unapologetically and also confront. Um, the prejudices against them and also lay a few prejudices and uh, make a few and jab back a few times at our uh, perceived oppressors or our popular culture. So definitely going to America and being able to be successful there has been uh, on my bucket list or is one of the uh, milestones that I'm still aspiring towards. But um, so I, you want to be on, do you want to go on the tonight show or, or the, you trying to, uh, a bit of both, man. I think, I think my there. my dream probably would be to have a HBO special and maybe do and just do a tour of the states and, and North America. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I like to be quite realistic, but I think yeah, just for me, just to perform to the various you know different contingents of well, and not, and not just like you know African Americans, but just Americans in general, and just follow the same path by a lot of the people that I look up to. So being able to maybe do a tour of the States, appear in a few festivals, uh, do some shows maybe across Central America and the Caribbean. And yeah, and have and maybe perform a few HBO specials would be would be my dream, to be honest. You both did, you both were on the, I mentioned before, the black British comedy circuit. And it didn't really exist when I was coming up back in the day, in the late 70s, early 80s. Can you explain for people who don't know what the black comedy circuit is, and why do you think it's important to the black British culture? Uh, uh, Gina first, please. Well, it was, um, when I came up, I was, I saw people like yourself, and you were on a, to me, you were on a different level, Lenny. You were like, you were like royalty, TV royalty, but then the black circuit that I came into, the top players at the time were the Curtis Walkers, the Angie Lamars, the Roger Dees, John Simmett, you know, Jeff Schumann, those were the, so the circuit was already up and running and, and already thriving when I came into that scene. What year is this about? This was 1995. This was 1995 okay. when I started. Um, and it was great because I was able to make a living immediately from the black comedy scene. Because remember, the white comedy scene, you got booked at comedy clubs and you got to pay the same pittance of a way. Dep- didn't matter who was on the bill. Didn't matter. It was, it was all about the people go to the white comedy clubs. Uh, by virtue of the reputation of that comedy club. So they go to that comedy club and they didn't even know who was on. So everybody got to pay the same money, which worked great in one way, because once you got into those clubs, you could do all the different clubs and make a lot of money just by the sheer amount of work you could get. On the black circuit, it was star-driven. People went to the shows, they go, it's Jeff Schumann and Friends, or it's John Simmons, or it's Curtis Walker, and people would go to see those people. And it was so... When I started, I got on Blouse and Skirt, A-Force. Within six months of starting doing comedy, I was oh on God. this TV show. I thought I was going to be huge stuff. So, oh, my God, I've made it already. I'm on TV within six. I got on the Jonathan Ross talent show, the Big Big Talent show. Uh, and then I got 
Blouse and Skirt, A-Force. And that was all within the first year doing comedy. So within the first year, I became a star on the black comedy circuit within a year of doing comedy. So within my first year, I sold out a little 50-seat of theatre, which for me was massive. Imagine, I've been <laughs> doing comedy less than 12 months. And I saw that 50 seat of theatre of people. 50 people wanted to see you throw just down. Just to see me. Some, some people still do those numbers in Edinburgh to this day, Gina. So that's a big thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big thing. You're looking to get 50. Yeah, but the Black Circuit did that for me. The Black Circuit did that for me in that it taught me to be a headliner way before I would have learned to be a headliner doing the little clubs around England, doing the junglers and the comedy stores, because those clubs weren't giving me that opportunity. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Dane, do, I mean, briefly, did you, because um, when I when I saw you at Hackney, I kind of thought, oh, well, you look like you play everywhere. Did you come up for the Black Circuit or did you just go straight into the white clubs? What I think, I think my you? initially, um, I did what I guess we refer to as the Black Circuit, but I didn't know it as such. Um, the first gig I was given was uh, from Kojo to play at the Comedy Funhouse. And so as a result, I was like, if you're offering me a stage, then I'll take it. And I think it was only after a few gigs and also talking to like colleagues while I was still working about the talent I was performing alongside and seeing how little awareness they had of like, because I, I, I think I was like maybe three or four gigs in by the time I was doing the Tabernacle with Jeff Schumann and Richard Blackwood. And like Gina said, I grew up listening to these people like, never heard of Angela Ma doing like Blue Mountain Theatre Productions and listening to people being advertised on Choice FM. So to me, I, like Gina, I was like, I'm, I'm alongside these superstars and I haven't been around for that long. And then I, it was a very strange phenomenon when I would tell people about my exploits in comedy and they'd be like, Richard Blackwood, have, is he still around? And I used to be like, is he still around? This is Richard Blackwood we're talking about. Like, <laughs> like, second, second coming since Lenny. Like that's how I perceived him like in the early noughties. And so... I, I guess through starting comedy, I was trying to, I took some time out because I was, I guess one of the things I noticed about the black comedy circuit was that you can 
basically go around it very quickly and arrive right. at a glass ceiling, as Judith says, where even though you initially do get paid a lot more than you do in white rooms, you can kind of reach the uh, the apex of earning potential. You reach that a lot quicker. And I think it might have been Quincy who said this, where he said that um, on the black circuit, you can run a car, like you can pay costs of running a car, whether it's petrol, insurance, maintenance, whereas success on the white circuit means you can buy a car. And that's the kind of <laughs> one of the big differences. Do you think black audiences are, are more conservative? They, they, they can be, they can about- be, but I think it's because, of that, like Gina says, that because they're presented with so many, uh, such a limited number of archetypes and a limited number of stories, and a lot of our peers can, I think through nothing else, if nothing else, maybe just fear of failure, can basically continue to spoon feed people the same things they've heard before. But I think... Yeah, and it, yeah. And it was terrifying when, you know, when I, I, it took me a long time to come out mm. because of the fear of losing my black audience. Yeah. Yeah, I you know, a long early. time. Yeah, I, I feared that for a long time because I, you know, black audiences tend to be more Christian based or more religious based and more conservative in the way they think when they're together. So because I think I think yeah, when separately, it took a long time. because one thing I think with black audiences or black black audience members, if they if they are in white rooms or yeah. they're not in small numbers, they will be a lot more receptive to themes like whether it's like homosexuality or you know they are, they're not as likely to hold on to their Christian conservative views as when they are together as a, a mass, because I think sometimes mob mentality begins to kind of prevail there. Yeah, are and, we and supposed we to be laughing at this? People are very worried about but, how they'll but be also, perceived. The power of fame also helps that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I know. Because once I became successful enough, I was like, you know anything. what? These people are following me because they know that my comedy is good. They enjoy what I do. So I might lose a small percentage, but I'll gain way more of being who I am. So I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to bring it to them and we'll see what happens. What was your and turning it, point for coming out on stage? You know what? I, I didn't come out on stage till I moved to the States. I got to the States and I was performing with like a lot of different comedians and, and specifically black. There was a black, young black female comedian called Shantae Wayans. She's the niece of um, Marlon Wayans and Keenan and all those guys. Mm-hmm. And out lesbian. And I remember I was touring with her on, and Cat Williams. I was on the Cat Williams tour. That's a whole nother crazy story. And I remember watching <laughs> herself being unapologetically herself. And I remember thinking, damn, the, the freedom in it, being able to go up on stage and having no fear of what people think of you. And I was like, you know what? I've been in this game long enough now. And I tried to play the game when I was in England, being not too threatening as a black woman, smiling and doing all, and you know, I didn't shuck and jive, but I definitely jumped through a lot of hoops. Oh, definitely. To yeah, make myself, to make myself less, yeah, less threatening and more palatable. And it did nothing for me and my career in England. So I was like, you know what? Oh. I'm out here now. This is a whole new world I'm living in. Let me just be my damn self. And they can, people can take me or leave me. And so I did that in America and I didn't make a big deal of it. Oh, I'm coming out. I just started incorporating into my act and then moving on to other jokes. So I didn't make a big deal of it. And then when I went back to England to tour, I just, just threw it out there. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, this is who I am. You probably suspected for a long time. Yeah. I, you know, I had people trying to out me before I was ready to be out. So I was like, you know what? I don't want to live in this fear. I never lied about it. Like I do interviews and, and I, I remember doing various interviews for The Voice and them asking me. And I'd be like, 
And I'd shirk the question. I wouldn't lie, but I'd say, listen, if people were saying I wasn't funny, then me and you would have a fight. But, <laughs> but if you're talking about my sexuality, talk amongst yourselves. I don't care. I'm no interest in answering that question. So that's how I would shirk it. But now, and I feel that since that's happened, since I've come out and just been who unapologetically, my, my comedy has, I was good then, but my comedy went up to another level. It's like a burden's come off your shoulders. It's like yeah, because I'm not something. hiding any aspect of myself. I don't care. There's a, a joy in just not giving a damn what people think of you. Woo-hoo! And, and it, there's a joy and a, a, a freedom in that. I'm so happy for you. That. That's brilliant. Yeah. Now, listen. On this podcast, we make a point of saying that we are going to let ourselves be defined by racism, but at the same time, we don't shy away from it. So. Um, Dane, I'm going to ask you first because Gina talks a lot. Um, <laughs> Dane, have you experienced racism in your in the course of your career so far? What's been the thing? I definitely have, but I want to hear it from you young people first. Um, well, I think, first of all, um, I think it's a common experience for everybody. And, and I always say that uh, experiencing racism as a black person is kind of like, you know, it's like, it's, it's like to when people about losing their virginity, like Tax. everyone's got a different story and that can sometimes be traumatic or it can be enlightening or inspiring for you, but it can definitely shape who you are as a person and how you choose to proceed through life. And I don't, mm-hmm. and I don't think anybody forgets their first time. Um, I think the most standout examples of racism I've seen as a comic have been what we today refer to as microaggressions. It's not really stuff like, you know, being pelted on stage by people or people stopping me from entering like a comedy club. It's more been particularly uh, maybe condescending references from who are perceived to be more the liberal aspects of comedians Uh where it's kind of been like, you know, you don't have to talk about it so aggressively or, you know, you don't always have to talk about race or even things where people are like, I'm so glad you didn't talk about race, which for me is like a very subversive way of saying you're one of the good ones, which um, (laughs) I find even more offensive. But um, I did the Leicester Mercury New Act competition, I think in 2000 and maybe in 2014. And I remember um, the review I got said that, oh, you know, he was basically the worst of the bunch and he would probably be more suited to doing uh, working men's clubs on a weekend, which meant that, you know, was not only a, I thought was like a racially wow. charged comment, but was also class- one based on elitism. Because I think one of the main things in the UK that, we have to remember is that it's a very unique brand of racism that we experience here, which is also tied into class, which I call placism. That's all we have in the UK is that uh, it's kind of racist. Yeah. People are placist because they have a chauvinistic idea that even as a black person or an Asian person, there are positions in which you should sit. So, and I say that because it's like when it comes to like maybe satirical formats or like panel shows, having an intellectual Asian or Desi comic is an archetype that people are used to seeing because we'll see like, you know, uh, Desi, members of the Desi community in positions of power, like whether it's in politics or as uh, GPs, whereas being an intellectual black person and talking about politics and being satirical is not something that white palettes are used to. So they expect you to be more of the, as we said, the kind of the more cliched uh, black comic and talk about the tropes and play up the accent and basically do the uh, comedy, comedy equivalent of uh, tap dancing. So I think Yikes. most of the pushback I, or the, the, the racism I experienced was people and their preconceived notions of me. So amazing that you've got this. This is this is your what you've led to live through. And I've had people threatening to hang me in the car park after the show. 
Uh, I mean, racism and what we've had to go through has really changed. I mean, Gina, did you experience racist stuff or did you manage to stay in the public? Absolutely. I mean, I don't even know if we've got t- enough time on this podcast to cover the, some of the give experiences. Us, give us a couple of but, headlines. Uh, I've had comedians tell me that all I talk about is being black. And I'm like, well, when Michael McIntyre talks about middle class, being middle class, or when Scottish comedians talk about being Scottish, or when Peter Kay talks about being Northern, you don't go, all he talks about is being Northern. But because they are not seen as other, what I'm talking about is seen as other, right? So that happened to me on a regular basis in various shows. Uh, my first Edinburgh show, I remember getting a review from The Guardian, which is supposed to be a liberal left-leaning paper mm. and i remember what the review saying something along the lines of after giving me a two-star review uh get, saying something along the lines of she does not delve deep enough into the african experience <laughs> that was in the review and i was like motherfucker i'm from i'm from london i'm from london i was born and raised and at that point you know, but you know what, review, he, what he means even, is i've never even been to nigeria but what he means is why don't you talk about the flies in her eyes and the starvation you know what, what exactly? Why does she talk about her trip to um, the well? What, where's that? Marcus, tell them about how we end the show. Okay. We always like to end on a positive note, Gina and Dane. <laughs> so who are some of the black British comedians we should be looking out for on a positive note? Some of the ones that I might not have heard of, some of the new up-and-coming ones. Who's making you laugh right now? Well, Dane can answer that question better than me because I am out of the loop being out here in America. I, you know... You don't even no watch idea. like you don't watch BBC World or anything to catch up with who is too busy. Mind you, I've never mind really you, watched comedy. I've never watched comedy because I didn't want to be influenced by other people. So I don't watch a lot of comedy because I don't want. You never know; it just seeps in. So I don't. I watch know. comedy when I'm out. I watch my peers, but I don't make a point of watching too much all other right, people right. stand up. So I don't That's know. Who, so who's out Jane, there? Who you, who's out there? Um, well, I think a lot of people out there, and probably what's been one of the most recent uh, shifts has been. I've seen a, a large amount of the people from my generation of comedians making a very successful transition into uh, mainstream and, and basically prime time. So goes without saying uh, the work and the success over the last three years of a comedian uh, comics like Mo Gilligan has been phenomenal. He's uh, very soon going to have his uh, show, the Black British Takeover at the O2 appearing on Channel 4, um, where he'll be performing alongside comics such as Babatunde Aleshi, uh, Eddie Caddy, uh, Tanya Moore. Brilliant. Uh, uh, Ola Labib, who is one of the first black female Muslim and Sudanese comedians to enter into the uh, industry. Oh, wow. Uh, I need mean, to look her up. This is amazing. Defined, yeah, hijabi defining stereotypes. Definitely check her out. Um, you mm. know, some of the guys I came up with, people like uh, Ori Styler, are making great moves as well. Um, but Who's the guy that won, um, recently won... Uh, Darren Harris has got talent. Oh, Britain's got talent. That's Axel Blake. So Axel Blake. Yeah, is, um, you know, I mean, yeah, he's, on, he's, he's, doing current, great. he's currently on tour as well. So Axel Blake. But yeah, I mean, as I said, I, I have um, one of the great things has been is that these comics, Gina, they've definitely paid attention. They've paid attention to right. the people like yourselves who are trailblazers, and they do make it a point of principle to like you know say they grew up watching us on TV, and you know it makes me feel a little bit old, but it's very endearing to see like yeah. the progress of new generations. Even people like Munya Chihuahua whose uh, new brand of like satire that he does online has given him legions of fans as well. And what this has done is that this has opened up new opportunities and it's opened new opportunities for some of the, uh, some of our forefather and foremother comics to have opportunities as well. So like Mr. C, for example, he writes on uh, the big nasty show. Um, you oh, know, fantastic. I've had uh, Jeff Schumann help me with writing and stuff as well. Mr. C mentored That's me for a very a long time. 
Um, so yeah, it's, there's, there's loads of comics coming up. And I think what the most encouraging thing is, as you said, Gina, is that people are moving away from the classic narratives and the classic show formats of Africa versus the West Indies or Caribbeans versus Godzilla. And it's now, good. It's a, it's a yeah. kind of, it's, I think what's brilliant is that you guys, you guys are a particular generation. And what's happened is that the people coming up behind you possibly, We'll have a bit of this stuff, but in the way that some of the stuff you're talking about in terms of race and your comedy peers is will be surprising to some, but not to me. And also, I feel like I, you know, <laughs> I feel like I covered the waterfront with that shit. What's great is that the new generation is coming up and they possibly won't really understand what we're talking about. No, they have their own power. The internet means that they can bring their product direct to their audience. They can bypass the gatekeepers. They don't need to be validated or anointed by these gatekeepers. They can just (laughs) make their product and take it straight to the audience. And that's the power that these, yeah. yeah, And and that's the power that these younger generation have. I mean, I, I started on a little level making my own specials, but these guys have taken it to a whole new level. And it's fantastic to see. Yeah. well, they make, they're making the comedy people. circuit look like the black comedy circuit in that is star power yeah. now leads and it is very character led as opposed to people behind the scenes and gatekeepers manipulating the market. So now when you can show up to these gatekeepers or show up to like uh, media houses and production companies with your numbers and with your metrics to prove how effective your work is, you can't necessarily be denied because if they won't take you on, somebody most definitely will. Or as Gina says, you can go straight to market. If you have a great product, you can, with new uh, facilities such as like paywalls through Patreon and the like, or by like, you know, just selling stuff online, there is... Well, shoot your own specials. I shot my, those three specials of mine, you know, yeah. two of the three specials this year of mine on Netflix, I made those specials myself with my own money. So well, the first person I ever saw selling to. DVDs after shows, Gina... And and so many people after do off the back of that you and Oliver Samuels yeah, and off the back of that so many comics do that now so many comics I used to see like you know even like white comics like Tiffany Stevenson who would basically sell their stuff directly and I think you know it has to be said to the punters yeah to, to yeah I, I basically face. modelled myself on these rappers selling their mixtapes out the boots of their cars so I was like well if that's how you can get an audience and build your crowd that's how I'm going to do it listen Dane Gina we've run out of time. Although we could have talked for hours. I've loved this. You've really, I mean, you've literally, I mean, I do go on stage, but you've absolutely tempted me to want to go on tour again and do a little stand-up. This is what the people Not are quite. waiting for, Lenny Not Henry. Quite. Sir Come Lenny, on, Lenny, I have to say to you, you, you need, basically, Sir Lenny Henry, you are in the same position as Eddie Murphy. We're just waiting. We're all waiting for the comeback tour. As I said but to I you, love I'll the give thing. you the same There's proposal no I give to but- Gina. I will open for free. Listen, I'm coming You're back. You're ready to go, I'm guys. I'm ready to go. But I think I'll there's a kind of, I think there's a king of, com- I think there's a kings of comedy thing that we, that, 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 that where we could do stadiums and stuff. I did Wembley, oh, definitely. Um, I did Wembley uh, Arena with um, Comic Relief. Judy Love was on. The reaction for the audience was, Im- I mean, you've never seen, the reaction for the audience was immense. They loved it. And I just thought, this is a great venue. Yeah, see, Mo Milligan's doing it for the youngsters. You do it for us yep. oldies, Lenny. Let's go. This is it. <laughs> so listen, we said in Black British Lives Matter for the Black British comedy thing, black laughter matters. Mm-hmm. It's lovely. We can hear it in the audience when there's, so, you know, when we when we do a gig and there's like one or two black people in there, we can hear it and it buoys us up. Um, and I think, and when there's more black people in, it's even better. I remember, remember coming to London after I'd done 
a load of shows in Birmingham and Birmingham's, you know, the Midlands is my house. So I kind of loved it. But when I came to London, it was different. It was so different at Hackney Empire that the laughs were different. The quality of the nuance of the reaction was different. And I'd like to say that today, the quality and nuance of this podcast has been very, very different to some of the others we've done. It's been wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate Thank it. You Come back. Me. We're going to do this again. Thank Come you. Back. Pleasure and a privilege. Thank you, Lenny. Okay, Lenny, so Dane and Gina have gone, so let's have a little debrief. What were your thoughts after speaking to them? I know we normally do a little debrief, but today feels so different. Talking to fellow black British comedians is like therapy for me. It felt good, you know. It also feels good to just acknowledge why what we do is important. It's more important than just cracking a few jokes. I mean, I certainly felt, but they were on a roll today. I thought Dane was incredibly smart, and I thought Gina was incredibly smart too, and very prepared to be open about life in America and life as a showrunner. I I really admire her bravery in going out there and taking them on. It's an extraordinary achievement. No, I I get it. I mean, mean, to be honest with you, I felt like a bit of an interloper with the three of you. You know, I was just like, you know, just kind of listening in like a fly on a wall on three amazing comedians talking about their life, their craft. And, you know, it felt like a real privilege to be allowed in on the conversation. Now, Marcus, do you want to tell people what we have next week? I would love to tell people what we have next week. Next week, we'll be covering the subject of why black British fathers matter with two amazing guests. The award winning actor and father of two girls, Adrian Lester. And joining Adrian will be Marvin Harrison the founder of Dope Black Dads, an organisation championing and supporting black fathers. Sounds like it's going to be a good one.